Welcome to all of you that are watching this message. My name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those of you that are new, I just briefly want to mention how I am going to be sharing what I'm about to share. In the Word of God, in 1 Peter chapter 4, I believe in verse 11, it says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And so I will seek to do that. I will seek to allow the Spirit of God to rise up through me so that I am speaking words that are not just from my own soul and spirit, but are coming by the Holy Spirit to you as an individual and to the corporate body of Christ for this particular time and age. In doing and enduring to do that, I seek to stay in a conscious state of worship so that there is a sensitivity to the Spirit of God to bring forth what I sense Him speaking to me to share. I also cast lots on the Scripture to allow God to, in His sovereign power, lead me to the right particular passage of Scripture. And I do that by the casting of lots. And I'm not going to go into all of that. There is a very sound uh, basis for doing that from it being practiced by the church before the time of Christ, before his death and resurrection, from the time of Adam and Eve, probably, although there's records way back in the uh, Old Testament scriptures. And also... We see it practiced by the early church and throughout church history. I don't treat this lightly, and if I had sin in my life, it wouldn't work. But I am walking and seeking to always walk in holiness before God so that I can be used to be a channel of his love to you, who in the foreknowledge of God has come across this message that you are now either watching or listening on iPod 2. I was led this week to the book of Revelations, particularly Revelations chapter 8, but I'm not going to share from Revelations chapter 8. It was clear to me that the Holy Spirit was giving me a burden to share from the whole book of Revelation. For those that are not acquainted with the Bible, Revelation is the last book of the Bible, and it is a book that gives an in-depth account of what will transpire in the last days. I want to share with you today what God is seeking to say at this particular time to the world, to the corporate body of Christ, and to you as an individual. I've done a brief summary of each chapter. I did memorize the book of Revelations, and it's 22 chapters. Some time ago, however, for the last six months, I haven't kept it up, so I'm probably very faded in that, although I did used to do it regularly, keeping up the memory of that particular book. So I want to share with you some of the things that God has revealed to me about the book of Revelation that I believe are important for us to know in this particular time. First of all, I want to emphasize that the book of Revelation is about, as it says in the very first verse, the very first 
five words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is about the revelation of God to the world that would receive it and come out of the world, the world system that is anti-God in principle and in function. I also received this week Ephesians chapter 5. And there's some verses there that I feel to share briefly before I get into the book of Revelation in Ephesians chapter 5. Now in Ephesians, we have a particular emphasis on God bringing forth his ultimate purpose, which is his corporate bride. In fact, the word Ephesians, Ephesus, means full-purposed, full-purposed. God's ultimate purpose is that he has a corporate bride. And so there is great description in the book of Ephesians on this corporate bride. And one of the things in Ephesians that is emphasized in chapter 5 is the importance that we are walking in a relationship with God. Where we are not fooling ourselves and pretending that we have a relationship with God and we don't, but where we really experience intimate fellowship with God. In this particular chapter of Ephesians, there's a verse that emphasizes the importance of walking in the light. <clears throat> and it brings it out and it says, Awake thou that sleepest, in verse 14. Arise from the dead and Christ shall give thee light. Now I want to tell you, that sleep here is indicative of being in a state that is not open to the light and therefore in a state that tends towards death or corruption that leads to death. Even the well-observed law in science, the second law of thermodynamics, basically is this, that everything tends to go in the direction of disorder onto greater and greater chaos, to total chaos when left on its own. And when we choose to go in independence of God, who is the very life source of the universe, we are leaving ourselves on our own, cutting ourselves off from the very source of life. And so what is left? Darkness. I'm not here to get into this in too much detail. But the source of light is love. And I'm talking about the love of God. For the word of God says that God is love. Now, it's a bit to explain this ultimate perfection of love, who God is. But there's two ultimate aspects to the love of God, which are like an ultimate negative and positive in the universe. In fact, the whole universe is made of negatives and positives. All the cells in our bodies have negatives and po positive forces. Everything is, seems to be filled with light, that is filled with life, has a negative and positive. And the ultimate reality is God. 
he is the very source of reality. In fact, his name is mentioned both in the Old and New Testaments as I am that I am. In Hebrew, it would be asher, no, ahiyah, asher, ahiyah. I am that I am, the very source of reality. Now, reality is defined in dictionaries as that which is basically unchangeable, everlasting and indestructible. And what quality has that? It is this ultimate perfection of love. And what is this love? It is a quality that is more than just a mere feeling of reciprocation with some other being. Certainly there involves that is part of love. But love is a quality that always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate gratification that would be less. God always chooses the highest lasting good freely from the innate essence of who he is. Because this is a love that is so pure and has such integrity, it is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that would be contrary to it. And if God's love was not filled with such ultimate purity of integrity, he would not be able to contain unlimited life and unlimited power without being corrupted by it or without it being dissipated by corruption. God's love is so pure that it will not allow the principle of corruption, the second law of thermodynamics, And so the first aspect of God's love is foundational. It is that it has integrity and will not tolerate the slightest that is contrary to it. And so that is represented as a negative symbol, negative foundation. I'm sharing this just for those that are new, briefly. And the other aspect of God's love comes out of this foundation, this negative symbol in electricity, which can also represent uh, not only a foundation, but cutting off that, which would be contrary to love, contrary to life. And out of that foundation springs forth God's love with such creativity that has no corruption in it and therefore can ever enlarge in greater creativity and in greater and greater realms of fulfillment. And it is ultimately revealed in the fact that his being has the capacity, without violating the integrity of his love, to create beings with free will so that they have the capacity to love because otherwise they would be like robots and would not have the capacity to love. To allow beings that have the capacity to be the source of their own action, to be totally self-originating, and therefore choose their own destiny, and yet with that, have the, because they are self-originating, have this capacity to love, and yet without violating God's being of love with his integrity, be able to assure 
forgiveness to those that repent and receive his love. To assure destiny to creation. If God created beings that he could not assure a destiny to, if they repented to receive who he is, that would imply he was less than perfect and not God. Now, I'm sharing a little bit on this and maybe in too much detail. I want to get into the book of Revelation, but I'm giving a foundation for those that come from a background that may not know these things. So, God had the capacity in his being to love us so much that he could take the judgment of our free choices of disobedience against him upon himself. And so he condescended in his son and suffered more than you, a mere creature. And humbled himself more than you, a mere creature. And people say, no, that can't be God. God would never do that. Let me explain. For God to be almighty and truly the one true God, he must be able to be beyond time and space, in conscious intelligence, in personage or identity, if you will. He must be able to be in the creation realm, in conscious intelligence or in personage in order to rule over that realm. And he must be able to also fill all things by his spirit and conscious intelligence and personage. And so there is these three ultimate di dimensions of existence, that which is beyond time and space, that which is time and space, which is the creation realm, and that which fills all space. And if God could not be a personage beyond time and space or in time and space, or filling all space, he would be less than God. God is known as the Father. The Father has the understanding of being the originator of all things and also of being beyond time and space. And in that aspect of government, God is known as the Father. The full expression of the Father or the originator is in the Son. The word Son means expression. Jesus Christ is the full expression of God into creation in personage. And as such, he is fully God ruling in creation. And if he was not in personage in creation as the Son, he would be less than God. And he also fills all things by his Spirit. And if God could not have such an ultimate purity of love that is so great that he could condescend and actually absorb the judgment of all of our free choices of rebellion against him. Would that be ultimate in love? What reveals that God is ultimately God and ultimately trustworthy is that he can have such an integrity and purity of love to not tolerate the slightest corruption without judging it, and yet, without violating that, have such a purity of love that he could take judgment upon himself so that you, if you repent, could receive 
his perfect atoning sacrifice through Jesus Christ on the cross. And what I am sharing with you today is on the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ is the revelation of God in the time and space realm to his creation. It is the revelation of God the Father into creation in his full expression, which is his Son. And in the book of Ephesians here, there's an emphasis in chapter 5 in relation to this ultimate purpose, which is that God would have a bride of the importance that we are not asleep. Awake thou that sleepest, arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. The verse that I quoted in Ephesians chapter 5, I believe verse um, 14, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And the, con the understanding of light is this. It's like electricity. It takes a negative and a positive for there to be the flow of life. We, most people nowadays, understand the atom, that there are electrons that are spinning at high speeds around the nucleus of an atom, forming a hard shell. And that the only thing that can cause current to flow or break that shell is a negative and a positive. And that negative represents us acknowledging God's holiness, that is the purity of his love, the integrity of his love, the defensive aspect of his love, and recognizing that it is actually the source of wholeness. It is the source out of which issues beauty, ultimate beauty. God is the very source of life. And that life is held in his love, which has this negative and positive aspect that generates light, like electricity. And out of that comes life. And so when we respond and we allow the, the hard shell of our heart to be broken of its pride by acknowledging our need, that we deserve the judgment of God because of his holiness, because of the integrity of his love, and recognize that he is so pure that he can forgive us and assure to us destiny because he became a perfect atoning sacrifice for us. In fact, it was in his being before the world created. The word of God says in Revelations, this very book, that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, slain before the world was created. Because whatever is a reality in the capacity of God's being is more than just a capacity. It is the very essence of who he is. So that it is as real as if it was already done before the world was created. And so Jesus Christ is described as the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world. Because in the being of God, there was that reality. That's why they acknowledged that God was the source of forgiveness and not some animal sacrifice from the very beginning. Yes, they recognized. I could go into all kinds of things. They recognized that the animals were used to uh, be a step of repentance and also to uh, cleanse the physical realm, which allowed God's presence to dwell with them. I won't get into it all. I can get sidetracked. Let's get to the book of Revelation. That's what I want to share from. But in Ephesians, meaning full purpose, it describes the corporate bride of Christ in Ephesians chapter 6, being likened unto a man, being married to a woman. Now, in the book of Revelation, it is 
22 chapters. And in the first chapter, you have a broad overview. Describing Jesus Christ, actually describing what he, a lot about who God is and about really what I've been just sharing about. It describes the triunity of the one true God as the Father and, of this, and, and the Son and as the Holy Spirit represented in the candlesticks. And so the Apostle John has a vision in which he sees God in his glory and he describes in chapter 1 towards the end here. He says this, His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like undefined brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. And in the book of Revelations, around 70 to 90 A.D., Paul, John the Apostle had this visitation from God and wrote down what he saw. Now, there are those that believe the book of Revelations has already been fulfilled and was, it was only applicable to the context of the particular time when John the Apostle was writing. But that's just a very immature and unintelligent assessment of the book of Revelations, ignoring the fact that the book of Revelations emphasizes in verse 19 here that, we're to, that he was to write the things, not only which are, but the things which shall be hereafter. And we have many uh, descriptions of the future in the book of Revelations, including the new heaven and the new earth. Now, what I want to share with you in this book is an overview of the book of Revelations in the context of what God is wanting to say to the body of Christ today. In chapters 2 to 3, we have his message to the seven churches at that time. And those seven churches represent also conditions of the body of Christ throughout history. And no doubt also represent the tendencies as time goes on towards the end. As to what condition, generally speaking, much of the body of Christ would be in. And the last church is the church of the Laodiceans. Laodicea means the people's rights. And certainly we are in a time when there's a great emphasis on democracy and on people's rights. 
Everyone wants their rights enshrined, it seems, in many of the democracies that exist today. Ephesus was warned that they had lost their first love. That was the first church. And the last one in this that is emphasized here is the church of the Laodiceans, who had come to justify a life of ease and of materialism as being an indication of God's blessing on their lives. But what God says to the church of Laodicea is well known. He says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, and I would that thou art cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increase with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They didn't know it. They'd been deceived by their own teaching to feel that their state of being at ease and satiated with all the pleasures of life and the things of this world was a sign of God's blessing on their lives. So he goes on to say, and that's why he says, because thou sayest I am rich, they had deceived themselves with teachings that allowed them to say they were rich with God because of material blessings. They were equating godliness with material gain. And there's another verse in the Word of God that says that those that equate godliness with material gain, we are to turn away from. When you have churches and all they emphasize is that God, if he's really blessing your life and you give enough, he'll bless you back. He'll really bless you if you give all your money and you do all these things. And that's where the emphasis is, is on what you get back materially. They're equating godliness with gain and they're in deception. For it also says in the word of God, has God not chosen the poor, heirs of the kingdom and rich and warned against the danger of material riches? Does that mean it's wrong to have material riches? No. Those that have a love relationship with God are not ensnared with riches if they are entrusted with them at all. Abraham spent much time in prayer. He had much riches, but he delegated his authority. He spent much time on his face before God and knew a relationship with God. So God calls the church to buy of him gold tried in the fire that they may indeed be rich. We need to say to God, Lord, I want you to take all ungodliness out of my life, that which is not in conformity to the purity of your love. So I want you to put me through trials and do what it takes to bring me to a place where I can truly be free in fellowship with you and know true abundance of life in this world as well as the hereafter. And so we are to choose to buy of God the gold tried in the fire by being willing from our heart to genuinely pray in such a way, asking him to be the potter and willing to let us be the clay and be put through the testings and trials of life to purify us. Now, in the book of Revelations here, I'm just, I've just got into it really, but I'm going to really get into what God is wanting to say now and how 
the Holy Spirit has brought forth this book. So we have in Revelations 2 and 3 the messages to the churches, which is to be in a love relationship with God that is pure. The church of Sardis in uh, chapter 3 is worth noting as well before we go on. The church of Sardis, I believe, had a situation in their town where, or in their city, where if they did not perform certain rituals of commitment to immorality and to certain vows, they were not allowed to be part of the guilds or whatever where you could make lots of money doing different trades and businesses. Because it says concerning the church of Sardis, this it says, remember therefore, I, I will go to the next verse it's, instead of reading that one. It says, thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. There was something that was defiling the garments of the people in Sardis so that there was just a few that had not defiled their garments. And I believe it was a ritual that they needed to perform and take certain vows in order to have the benefits of material blessings, to be able to be part of a trade or, or whatever that they were doing in order to make a good income. And so the Lord says this concerning Sardis in verse 5, He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. This makes it very clear that even those that are believers, that have white garments, that are redeemed, that are washed, can have their garments defiled and have their names removed out of the book of life. If they go and do this particular ritual or vow that they have to take to be part of a guild or whatever to make a good income and to have the security of material blessings. And they do that. They break their relationship of integrity with God and have put those material things and their own immediate self-interests and therefore their own life above God. And this church of Sardis is a picture also of what will happen in the last days. Many will come to the place where they have to make a decision between having the material blessings, or I wouldn't even say blessings, but material gratifications and pleasures that are temporary, or choosing to suffer persecution and martyrdom be in a relationship with God. Now, there is the next chapters in Revelations, verses four, chapter four, four and five, where there's a description of, the, of what is happening in heaven and of the authority in heaven in Revelations chapter four, from which the judgment and the courts are issued 
of the judgments that transpire upon the earth. And then there's a beautiful picture in Revelations chapter 5 of the center and the focus of worship being on the being of who God is in his glory, in the manifestation of and his, and his expression to his creation, which is in his son, the Lamb of God. And of him becoming that perfect atoning sacrifice. Now, I'm not going to go into all of that. What I want to point out here right now begins in Revelations chapter 6. In the book of Revelation, God begins to, as it were, put a magnifying glass upon the history or the future of what is going to happen in the world. And the first glass that we're looking at is a broad spectrum of time from the time of Christ right up to the end. And that's in Revelations chapter 6 in the first four seals. We do have the other seals. The next set of, those, these are the seals. But in Revelations chapter 8, we have this magnified with uh, other seals that are open, actually the trumpets. Couldn't say that actually. I'll just turn to Revelations chapter eight here. And there are angels that are sounding trumpets uh, in Revelations chapter eight. So we have Revelations chapter six, which has actually six seals mentioned, but also going on to the seventh. Then you have Revelations chapter 8, where there's another 7. And then you have Revelations chapter 16, where there's another 7. In Revelation 16, there's seven vials of judgment. Revelations chapter 8, there are seven uh, trumpets of judgment. And in Revelations chapter 6, you have this seven seals. And I want to give you an understanding of what's going on here. In Revelations chapter 6, these first four seals that are open are looking over a broad span of time from the time of Christ to the end. And I'll explain that briefly. And then when we go to the next set of judgments in Revelations chapter 8, where the angels are sounding the trumpets, that is looking into a shorter period of time that comes out of the seventh seal. So once you get into the seventh seal or kind of the sixth seal going into the seventh, then there's a magnification into a shorter period of time and a more intense period of judgment within that shorter period of time. And then when we go later on to Revelations chapter 16, then we are looking at the vile judgments, the seven vile judgments, which come out of the seventh trumpet of the angel or kind of the sixth going into the seventh. And in that, there is an even more shorter time period. So the magnification is even more intense over time. So you're looking at a shorter time period with greater and more severe and intense judgments. And I just want to give you that understanding of the overview of how this is unfolding in the book of Revelation. And in Revelations chapter 6, we have the first seal that is open. 
And it's described in verse 2 where it says, And I saw and behold a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. This represents the period from around the time of Constantine where there is the colonizations of the world through Christianity. And so we have it represented in a white horse going forth conquering and to conquer. It represents the period of the spread of the gospel and of world colonization with that spread of the gospel. And then we have the period of time in the second seal of the red horse. And another horse that was red, power was given to him that sat thereon to take away peace from the earth and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And so we see that there's also this other horse which represents global war happening. We see that in World War II. We do see it throughout church. We see it throughout history from the beginning, but it becomes more manifested in the more strong, prom prominent manifestation at this particular time, periods of time like World War I and World War II. Doesn't mean that this horse didn't exist in the other periods of time, but now it's become prominent in those times. And then you have the third horse, which is the black horse mentioned and it says this and I beheld in low a black horse in verse 5 of Revelation 6 and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand and I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine <clears throat> this represents a period of time where there is economic fragility, which is the time that we are living in now. This is the thing that is continually very delicate. It's, it's like the balances that are described here. It's a period of economic fragility and of being very careful to balance all things. And that's the prominent horse at this particular time period. And then we have the fourth horse representing the very time of the end, and behold, a pale horse, in verse 8, and his name that sat on was death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. And this represents only a fourth part of the earth that will be filled with absolute anarchy and where these terrible plagues of pestilence and of death will prevail. And even now we begin to see almost a fourth part of the earth coming into that kind of a state of just terrible destruction. We see it in the Mideast with ISIS and so on. And these represent four broad time periods. And the fifth seal in Revelations chapter 6 represents the number of responsibility is the number five in the Bible. And this fifth seal, which is talked about, is in verse 9, And I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season 
until their fellow servants and also their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. This represents all those that were martyred for the truth of the gospel, for the truth of who God is, for, the, for Jesus Christ in these major broad spectrums of time from the time of Christ. The period of world colonization, the period of global wars, the period of economic instability and, and the realms also of anarchy. It can also represent um, not only broad time periods, but three aspects under which these people are martyred in all of these time periods. But this represents those that are martyred on those time periods. And then you have the sixth seal, which is the consequence of God's anger being taken out upon the earth because of what they have done and how they have treated God through how they have treated people that represent him by martyring them. And we see that that represents the ultimate major earthquake that will devastate all the corrupt world systems that exist and bring in the kingdom of God. And we see here something very interesting in the description of the sixth seal. This sixth seal describes this great earthquake and that at that time, the sun will be black as sackcloth of hair and the moon will look like it's like blood. And there will be meteor showers. The stars of heaven will fall to the earth. Heaven will depart as a scroll when it is rolled together. Every mountain and island will be moved out of their places. But they will actually say this, the, the people of the earth, the multitudes of the earth that are in rebellion against God. They will say to the mountains and rocks, verse 16, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? Here is another picture of God revealing himself. But this is God revealing himself to a world that is in rebellion against him. And I want to explain this. As time is going on, there is more and more truth being discovered that confirms the reality of God. For example, the word of God says that he will give them strong delusion to believe a lie, that they all might be damned, that had pleasure and that loved not the truth and had pleasure in unrighteousness. That's in Thessalonians. We see theories like the theory of evolution being promoted as if it is fact. And yet the evidence, the scientific evidence, and you can look at even some of the things I've shared at my other site at ultimatemeaning.com, the scientific evidence that exposes this theory of evolution as being a mastery of deception is overwhelming in every field of science. So much so that there are many, many highly qualified scientists around the world that once were strong advocates of evolution that no longer are. They are strong advocates of intelligent design and in many cases of believing in God. But they were once the other way. But they saw how overwhelming the evidence is. And it's increasing all the time. For example, the electron microscope where there are little machines in our cells that are so complex that according to the book in Doran's Black Box, which is an expert that is a scientist in this area, 
these little devices and machines that are in our cells are more complex than a spaceship traveling that can travel to other planets and reduplicate itself and keep spreading throughout the universe, something a man is not even able to do today. And yet that's what exists in our little selves. And I'm not going to go into all the evidence, but the more the evidence increases on the reality of God, the more man tries to hide from that reality by putting up more and more layers of lies and stating it as if it's fact. And so he's trying to hide from the reality of who God is by all of these false lies and these false theories that are stated as if they're fact when they're based on a lot of things that can be exposed as total folly and the farthest thing from science. I can't go into all of the evidence here. But you can go to my site and look at that at ultimatemeaning.com. But what is happening as time goes on is that it gets to the point where man continually is hiding from the reality of who God is by, all, by choosing to believe these strong delusions that God allows him to have because of the choices of his own heart and rebellion against him. It gets to the point where God begins to be seen coming back to the earth. Obviously, we're not at that point now. But when this happens, it's going to get to the point where they're going to see God return to the earth to the point that it is so terrifying that they're going to cry for the mountains and the hills to fall on them. Now, this is not just prophesied here in the book of Revelation. It is also prophesied in other parts of Scripture, such as in Isaiah. Isaiah also describes this major earthquake that's described here in Revelations chapter 6 that will destroy all the world, the systems of this world that are based on an anti-God principle where man is the center instead of God as the center. Selfishness, the selfishness of man and his corruption is the center, and because it is corrupt, it has the principle of destructiveness in it and will not stand the test of time, obviously. It's the second law of thermodynamics. It just goes in the direction of total chaos to utter destruction. Man brings it upon himself. But in Isaiah chapter 24, we have the whole chapter describing this major earthquake that will happen in the last days. And I'm just going to read a few verses from verse 13 to verse 16. And it says this, when thus it shall be in the midst of the land among the people, there shall be as the shaking of an olive tree and as the gleaning grapes when the vintage is done. They shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. Wherefore glorify ye the Lord in the fires. Even the name of the Lord God of Israel in the isles of the sea from the uttermost part of the earth have we heard songs, even glory to the righteous. 
But I said, My leanness, my leanness, woe unto me, the treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously. Yea, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. Well, that last part I don't need to explain. The part I want to emphasize is that when there is this powerful destruction, which is described in Revelations, for example, in 16, it says, and the cities of the nations fell. I believe it's chapter 16 of Revelation. Then what happens? The corporate body of Christ, his bride, is in the midst of all this destruction, worshiping God in the midst of the fires, because at that time is when the Lord returns to the earth. Yes, there's rubble all around them and fires, but they see the Lord returning. But at the same time as this is happening, there are others that are going to be hiding in terror. And this is also described in Isaiah 26. And it's, it's like when God begins to appear this way before the whole planet, like nothing can no longer die. Even things will start to come back to life that are dead. And it's described here. And so they're trying to hide in the mountains and the rocks, but they can't even die. They can't even hide from what they're seeing because there's another dimension beginning to come forth as God begins to come forth into the earth so that, you, so that the principle of, of death is being reversed. And we read this in Isaiah 26, which is also describing uh, the same thing in a different way. And it says, Thy dead man shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. So people are going to come out of their graves because the presence of God is going to come forth in such a powerful dimension of life that the dead will rise from the dead and that other people will not be able to die and will be not able to look at the terrifying purity of this love that is coming at them in judgment because they've hardened their heart in a state that is so anti-God. That they're calling for the mountains and the rocks to fall on And there's another passage in Revelations that says, In those days shall men seek death, and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. Because God, the Christ, God himself will be revealed to the whole planet at that time. And no one will be able to hide from the presence of God. And those that are in an anti-existing, anti-existent state of being, that is, instead of, onto life, onto destruction, and makes a hell around them for others because of a hell in their heart, will be consumed with utter torment as the presence of God will not allow even things that want to die to die. Because it says in Isaiah that even, as it says here, the earth shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. Because the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth. That's Isaiah 26, 
verse 21. Now, as we continue with this book of Revelation, I have given you the broad scene that is being shown here like a big magnifying glass over the period of time from the time of Christ to the end. The fifth seal being the, the martyrdom of those and the sixth being the response of God's judgment in vengeance upon those that have rebelled against his love and rejected his love, him who condescended and suffered more than a mere creature, more than you a mere creature, and humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, to take the judgment of your sin upon himself and of the world so that you could repent and be forgiven and cleansed. And those people rejected it. They rejected love. And what is left when you reject the ultimate source of love is the opposite, a state of utter torment that is beyond description and that goes on forever and ever. We see in Revelations chapter 7 the bringing forth of God's bride in Israel and the Gentiles also coming forth from all the world, coming out of great tribulation and being purified. I won't go into all of that for time because this is a broad overview of the book of Revelation. In Revelations chapter 8, it describes the opening of the seventh seal in magnification of detail and intensity out of the sixth seal angelic judgment of this earthquake that I just described and that also describes the return of Christ under them wanting to hide under asking for the mountains and rocks to fall on them. So in Revelations chapter 8 we're now entering the angelic trumpet judgments that are coming out of this sixth seal that we read about in Revelations chapter 6. The sixth seal is this great earthquake. And now out of this, this is leading into the seventh seal, but it's in the seventh seal that we're led to see this more closed time spectrum, this more specific time towards the end in more intense judgments. And we see that the first one in Revelations chapter 8 is mentioned, and this happens after the scene in heaven where there's all these prayers going up before God like incense. And then God begins to respond to all those prayers of the saints, crying out unto God because of all the injustices that they're experiencing and the world is experiencing because of people that are in rebellion against God in high places and in, and in, the, and in all positions of the world that are afflicting such injustice. And their prayers are going up and there's a response of God's judgment in these judgments. So these seven angels sound, and the first one that sounds describes this. And there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth, and a third part of the trees was burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. That seems like a 
rather far-fetched thing. This is what can make some people think the Book of Revelations is not even realistic. But really, this is not far-fetched at all. There has been many major asteroids recently, if you've been following the news or know anything that's going on, that have come very close to the Earth. And there's a greater and greater concern of asteroids hitting the Earth. Many of these asteroids are large masses of ice. So if an asteroid gets particularly close to the Earth, it could break up and be just have the effect just like we see here, of being like hail mingled with fire that's cast upon the Earth and causes a third of the trees to be burnt up in the Middle East, most likely, since this is where this book is being described and written. And then we go on with the list of the other judgments and revelations, chapter 8. There's uh, the first four trumpets, judgments in Revelations chapter 8. There's the vegetation that's burnt, the sea. One third of it has become like blood. Then there's the poisoning of the waters, causing of multitudes of people to die. That could be also, it says that it was a star that fell from heaven and that landed upon these waters and caused this to happen. These are all very realistic things. And of course, there isn't time doing a broad overview of the book of Revelations to go into any detail upon this. It describes the second angel. As it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea. Well, what would that represent? It could represent an asteroid that hit the earth? Very likely. Causes a third part of the sea to become like blood. Third, third angel judgment. There fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp, and it fell upon a third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the waters. We go on, and then we see the cosmos beginning to have strange manifestations where a third part of the sun is darkened, a third part of the moon, a third part of the stars. All of these things begin to happen. We're living at a time just before we're probably going to see these asteroids hit the earth and this begin to unfold. I'm going to go on because I want to bring out what God's wanting to say to the body of Christ in the book of Revelations. The ultimate purpose here is a revelation of God to the world. The revelation of who God is and his pure, pure love. And these two aspects that I mentioned, which is the holiness of God and the mercy of God. His power to be provide destiny to forgive, to assure forgiveness because God in Christ became a perfect atoning sacrifice. There are other judgments described in Revelations chapter 9. And it's very clear in Revelations 9 that God was allowing these judgments in order that man would turn back to God but as time goes on, 
and man continues to resist the truth of who God is, he becomes more and more hardened and anti-God. So that even though God allows these two very severe judgments described in Revelations chapter 9, they do not repent, hardly any, if any, of the multitudes upon the earth. These are aberrations of nature because, and this is happening now, there are scientists that are legally trying to make creatures half human, half animal, so on. Here we see these things happening in the last days, and so it's not a surprise if this is already going on that this kind of thing can happen, where you have these strange aberrations of nature. Of course, you have the star that falls from heaven and and that one is it, describing an angel. So sometimes the stars represent angels. And I'm not here to go into all of what it says in Revelations 9. This is just a broad overview. In Revelations chapter 10, God then draws back and he wants to reveal his ultimate purpose and why he's allowing all of these things. His ultimate purpose is the whole reason for why all of these things are being allowed. It is that he might bring forth the purpose for which he created all things, which is to be consummated in a corporate bride. And that corporate bride is seen reflected in the creation of all things, for in all things there is male and female counterparts which is a reflection of God's ultimate purpose that he have a corporate bride. And God is seeking to have a corporate bride of his people around the world. And it says in Romans 8 that when there is the bringing forth of his pure bride, that it will liberate the whole creation. And this is mentioned in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I could just say it from memory, but oops. <laughs> Romans chapter 8. I'll just turn to it. And it says this in Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> I'm just looking for the exact part, part for it. Um, here it is. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. The manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And I won't go on. So it's describing how there will be the manifestation of the sons of God, this corporate bride that will cause even all creation, the animals and, and all life to be liberated from corruption. And in Revelations chapter 10, it describes this great purpose that will come forth. And it's described uh, as, an, as this angel that 
reveals it. And it says this, verse 2, describes this powerful angel, and I won't go into the detail of it. And this angel cries out, and he sets his, he has a little book open in his hand, and he sets his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the earth, and he cries with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders utter their voices. And I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders have uttered, and write them not. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven, and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. The fact that there's going to be no time is speaking of the time when there will be no corruption, there will be no death, so there will be no need of a consciousness of beginning and end, which is related often to the fact that things get old over time. This is describing the unity that will happen. And there's a mystery. There's seven thunders that are related to this mystery of bringing back the unity of God with his corporate bride. And of course, the unity of the body of Christ with one another around the world or in the mystery of these seven thunders. What might these seven thunders be? God hasn't shown me exactly what they are. But I have a good suspicion they have to do with the secret of unity, which comes out of the fear of God, which is the choice to recognize God in, his in the constitution of his being that is ultimately trustworthy, which is this constitution that I've described of love in its two aspects, the ultimate negative and ultimate positive. The integrity of God's love to require judgment and of all that is contrary to his love and its transcendence out of that foundation in being able to provide mercy and destiny and ultimate purpose in a corporate bride that will go on forever and ever in enlargement and creativity in reciprocated fellowship with God. The foundation is the fear of God, and it is out of the fear of God that there springs forth all the other relationships of unity. It is out of that right recognition of God that there is the revelation of his love, and out of the revelation of his love, the response of faith, and out of the response of faith, unity. And it goes on, and I don't know what those seven thunders are, but I believe God will reveal them. The secret of entering in to this ultimate purpose is described in Revelations 10. And then we have in Revelations 11, the righteous ground of rebellion against truth as justification for the release of God's judgments to bring forth his purpose. The two anointed witnesses testify against the world antichrist system and the antichrist. These two witnesses are martyred. The 
third day they rise again. And the whole world sees it on television. It says the whole world watches these two, two prophets rise from the dead right in front of them all. And they're terrified. And then there's this powerful earthquake, which is described again, which is the seventh trumpet judgment in which the kingdom of God begins to come upon the earth and the kingdoms of this present world are, are destroyed. I do want to bring out something here as I go on now to um, describe the various scenes here. There's so much to share here that it's very hard to share in such a short period of time. <clears throat> there is God allowing people to go their own way as nations. But it does say in the word of God that he has foreknown the boundaries of the nations and so positioned their boundaries so that they might be cornered to seek God. So God also has foreknown why various nations and groups of people are in the constriction they are in due to their own choices that have brought those judgments upon them. And this is true of our lives individually. We make wrong choices, and then because those choices are wrong, there's a rebound back in our lives. We reap what we sow, and it causes pressure. And the pressure of consequences can either corner us to the reality of who God is so that we receive his mercy and grace, or it can harden our hearts more so that we come to a place eventually of utter destruction and eternal judgment and torment in hell without end if we ultimately reject the love of God. And so in Revelations chapter 11, there is again that scene of this powerful earthquake that is described And it is after that earthquake that there is the sounding of the seventh angel where it says, and there were great voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And I can't go on for time to describe all of this as this is just an overview of the book of Revelations. But again, we're seeing that in the seventh angel, there's the final consummate purpose of God that is brought forth, where his kingdom begins to replace the kingdoms of this world completely. They are utterly judged and destroyed, and the kingdom of God comes upon the earth. And again, we see in Revelations chapter 12, God explaining some of the things that are going on that involve his ultimate purpose in this corporate bride. And he describes how these people are being persecuted by the world system and by the Antichrist. So that they are forced to flee into the wilderness and to hide and how God shelters and protects them. There's so much in even Revelations chapter 12. 
There's a unity that comes into the body of Christ that Christ prayed for in John 17, where we would be one with God, even as he is one with the Father. And that out of that, there would come a total oneness, a deep inter-reciprocative fellowship of faith and love, not only in union with Christ and God, but with one another. To the point that the devil that would accuse us before God can find no grounds for accusation. And also there is war in heaven and the angels, the righteous angels in heaven cast Satan out of heaven onto the earth with his angels. And they persecute this bride which is protected and sheltered by God on the earth. I wanna just bring out something here now too. There, I, someone sent me an email of someone that really could be possibly the Antichrist. As you know, in Greece, there's been very uh, terrible economic chaos where it's so bad, the situation there, that the suicide rate has gone up 40% and so on. People don't have money. They're desperate. They don't know what to do. And there's been the Golden Dawn Party, which is almost identical to the Nazi Party and has a lot of seats in Parliament there in Greece. But now there's a man that's come on the scene that's an atheist and an extreme leftist, and he's won the election. And he seems to be fulfilling a lot of the scriptures that the Bible talks about of the Antichrist and what he will be like. And his name is Alex, and I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Tisipris, Alex Tisipris. And this man is in a desperate situation, is doing a lot of things that seem to be indicative of the possibility that he could be a very real, either archetype of the Antichrist or possibly the Antichrist himself. Because he feel, according to this uh, blog post, he um, is doing a lot of things that are identical to what the scripture says the Antichrist will do. He's met with Pope Francis to discuss a peace treaty with Israel. We know the Antichrist is going to make a peace treaty with Israel. This is what he said. We discussed the need for peace to return on earth for the immediate cease of war interventions. I asked him to take an international initiative for the termination of conflicts in the Middle East. Finally, we agreed that the dialogue between the left and the Christian church must go on. And he goes on here. I'm not going to go into it all. And then he's got a multi-billion billionaire backing him up, George Soros which is also an atheist and hates Christians a lot. And he's giving Greece billions of dollars and backing this man up. The Bible describes in Revelations a little horn. Um, actually in the book of Daniel. And so Here in the book of Revelations, I'm going to go to Revelations 13. That is describing this beast and the false prophet 
and the worldwide Antichrist system and the martyrdom and persecution of the saints. And this gentleman from Greece has been meeting with um, Russia, which is also very interesting. There was a discussion, Alexander Tipris, February 10th. The discussion with the ambassador of Russia, Mr. Malslaw, also was about pending agreements between the ministries of national defense of Greece and Russia, the capabilities of a strategic cooperation, the organization of the year of Greek-Russian friendship in 2016, which will take place in Greece and in Russia. I received an invitation by Russia's Minister of Defense to visit Moscow within the next period of time. And it goes on. I cannot go into more, but why is this significant? Well, I'll tell you why. Because what I'm about to share with you in the book of Revelations here is more particularly, um, yes, we have a description of the Antichrist conquer, conquering and ruling the world in Revelations chapter 13. But we have the description in Revelations chapter 17 of the horns, which are also described in Daniel, where it mentions a little horn that will rise up with, with power and will prosper towards the south and the east and towards the pleasant land. And this little horn becomes the Antichrist as described in Daniel. But it's also described in Revelation 17 that there's 10 horns. And it says here in Revelation 17 about these 10 horns that they will hate this world system. Now I haven't even described any of this it seems that time just goes by so fast in doing such a long overview of the book of Revelation. I want to skip right now from Revelations 13, which describes the Antichrist conquering the world and ruling over the world and persecuting the saints. I just want to briefly go to Revelations 17 here where it describes these seven horns because what it is saying is very revealing in relation to this gentleman in Greece and it says this It's describing, first of all, in Revelation 17, a woman that sits on many waters that represents a corrupt world system. The inference is that once she was maybe pure, but now she's a harlot. And it describes her here I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand 
full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath seven heads and ten horns. And then it describes this evil leader, the beast, that thou sawest, was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. I wish, you know, I could speak a whole hour just on this chapter, but this gentleman, whoever it is, is going to experience or is going to be able to manifest supernatural power to even transcend time. He has some, some relationship with the past Roman kings in the time when Christians were martyred by those evil Roman emperors before Constantine. But what is the most telling about this particular man in Greece that could be fitting into all of this is seen in Revelations chapter 17 in verse 16. The ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the poor and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. So here we have the leader in Greece becoming very close with Russia. A lot of you don't know all that's going on in Russia, but there's a man that has a lot of influence over Putin. His name is also Alexander something, I forgot, Lupkin or something who has given plans for Russia to destroy the United States and has a strong vision for that. He teaches at many of the major universities there. I can't go into talking about all this for time. I wish I could. But There's been prophets like Henry Groover, which you can see on my site at loverealize.com that are foretell when China and Russia would attack the states with nuclear cruise missiles and all those cities would be incinerated. My prayer is that that can be prevented and not happen. But he's not the only man that has prophesied this. And Henry Groover is a man that really lives a holy life and is put his life on the line before people that said they were going to behead him, terrorists and so on, Islamic terrorists, and been delivered supernaturally many times by God. I don't think what he says, when he puts his life on the line like that, can be uh, taken lightly. And there are others. And so you can see how these ten horns which represent the leaders of Europe and then you've got this horn coming out of Greece, 
it becomes close to Russia and China that have this motive to destroy the states. And then Europe decides to go instead with the states to go instead and make an agreement with this leader in Greece that is an agreement with Russia and China. And then there's the agreement, wipe out the free democracies of the world, like England, like Italy, like the states. And there's this nuclear attack and the woman is burned with fire as described in Revelations chapter 18. Now I've skipped ahead to Revelation 17 and I want to now go back and just fill in what is in Revelations 14 to 16. Revelations 14 we have a very clear sequence of events described where it gives the sequence of these events that I'm talking about. Revelations chapter 14 describes this around verse 16, if I remember right. No, it's not verse 16. It's further up, closer to the beginning. It starts in verse 6, pardon me, not 16. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment is come and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the dry land and the fountains of waters. So you have this first angel. That's the first angel that comes on the scene. We are living in the period right now where that angel is beginning to sound and it is preaching the everlasting gospel, which is this, to fear God and to worship him. And in there is the full essence of the gospel from the very before the world was created till now. And I do preach this gospel. And I preach how the gospel was in God even before the world was created. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And how people were born again of, of the spirit from the very beginning, from the time of Adam and Eve. Enoch had such a close relationship with God that he was translated. Such fellowship and relationship with God. Christ expected Nicodemus to be born again of the Spirit. Now, I would spend a lot of time if I got into explaining all this, so I will forbear. But it's not just me. There are many people that are preaching this everlasting gospel where there's an emphasis on the fear of God in these last days. And so it is being preached and people are coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And right after that, the next angel comes on the scene, which is the next sequence of events in this Revelations chapter 14. And it says this, And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And that is the next event that happens, this destruction, nuclear attack upon the United States, upon Britain, upon different democracies of the world, where the major cities are incinerated. Now, George Washington, according to men of integrity that were very close to him, give account that he had an angelic visitation where he saw what would happen to the United States in the last days, where they were attacked on both the east and west coast and it looked like they were going to lose. They were pushed in right into the middle and they cry out unto God. God delivers them and they push these enemies off their shores. I pray that indeed happens and that judgment is minimized. 
And so there's the destruction by the beast who is in agreement with the common market, the European Union most likely is what those ten horns are, ten kings, ten rulers, that decide in the end to go with Russia and the beast, which is this little horn that's also described in Daniel. And then after the corrupt, immoral, democratic systems that have flaunted God in the face with immorality and with the false lie of evolution and humanism, and they are destroyed, what comes in place of it is the Antichrist world system. And so we see the third angel coming on the scene. And the third angel is described here. And the third angel followed them, saying, with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. And I can't share more for time, because it's really getting to be a long time I've been speaking on that. And then in Revelations 15, it's a description of those that overcome the Antichrist and the Antichrist world system, and of the righteousness of God's judgments upon the nations, God's great anger against the Antichrist world system, and the magnification intensification of the seventh angelic tr trumpet judgment in preparation of the seven golden vile judgments against the Antichrist and the Antichrist world system. And so in Revelation 16, we have a greater magnification into a shorter time period. So we're looking now really at the last period of time, which is the time when the Antichrist is reigning and the severe judgments that will come that are very intense from God in that period of time. And that's what's described in Revelations chapter 16. I have it written out here. The first one is sores that cause torment on those that receive the mark of the beast so that they are filled with anger and hate towards God. The second, the sea be the whole sea becomes blood. Everything dies in it. Probably the Mediterranean. Could be the whole world, I don't know. The rivers and fountains of waters become blood as vengeance upon the multitudes that have been martyred and whose blood has been shed. Then the sun becomes extremely hot, intensifies with heat, scorching the inhabitants of the earth. And instead of turning to God and repenting, as they can still, to be saved, they become angry and blaspheme against God. Then the fifth judgment, darkness upon the throne of the beast, causing pain and torment upon all of those that are in submission to them. And the sixth judgment is the deception of demons that cause miracles through the Antichrist and his false prophet so that people are gathered together against God himself and against his corporate bride. And so there's a warning in Revelations chapter 16 in regards to that. 
Revelations chapter 16 says this. In regards to this. It says, well, I'll do 14 first. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So in the midst of all of this, even when the Antichrist is reigning in tear, he's calling God's people to watch and to keep their garments pure, to not compromise and give in like the church of Sardis did so that their garments were defiled and their names were removed out of the book of life. He's calling them to remain pure in the midst of this oppressive time under the terror and reign of the Antichrist. Lest they see your shame so that they have excuse to turn away from God. May we be those that are with Christ and gather people onto Christ. I described earlier Revelation 17, and then you have Revelations chapter 18, which is the description of this terrible destruction upon uh, the world systems, which are probably the systems, I'm sure, the systems of democracy around the world that have become immoral and blasphemous against God and are persecuting the righteous. And then in Revelations 19, there's this description of rejoicing over the destruction of the world system that is anti-God and the coming forth of the bride. And this would also include the destruction of the Antichrist system as well, which will rebuild Babylon because it describes Babylon again, except this time it is destroyed by an earthquake instead of by fire. So this is the Babylon under the Antichrist that he has built that is destroyed by a major earthquake, which has been described earlier, such as in Revelations chapter 11 towards the end. And we read in Revelations 19, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he saith unto me, See thou do it not. For I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I will just say that in Revelations 19 it describes rejoicing over the destruction of the world system and Rejoicing over the bride of Christ and us coming into marriage corporately with God. But we're invited to the marriage supper with God, with the Lamb of God. I'll read it here. It says here, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, that is to God. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife hath made herself ready. That's verse 7 of Revelations 19. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And then it describes the Lord returning in power and authority and destroying the Antichrist. Verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So the sword of light comes out of the mouth of Christ as he's sitting on the horse, and it totally slays the Antichrist and all of the armies. And then the beast is cast into the lake of fire. Now, I don't have time to continue preaching much longer. This is pretty hard to do an overview of the whole book of Revelation. But I will say this. <clears throat> That in Revelation chapter 20, we see what has happened after the Antichrist and the Antichrist system is destroyed. That Christ returns to the earth and he rules on the earth for a thousand years. The casting of Satan into the bottomless pit for a thousand years and those that are in the first resurrection that comes probably somewhere around the time that Satan is bound and cast into the bottomless pit. They will rule with Christ for a thousand years, and that includes those that refuse, which includes those that refuse to compromise with the beast and its world system who were martyred. And that's, it describes all of this in the book of Revelation. So Satan is bound for a thousand years, and there's paradise on earth, and then he's allowed to be released and to deceive the nations. And then what happens? is they gather against those that truly know a relationship with God and fire comes down from heaven and devours them. And at that time, the whole universe, the cosmos is burned with fire and a new heaven and a new earth are created. And all the dead are brought before the great white throne judgment of God. And either they are in the book of life or they are cast into the lake of fire. And it says, And I saw a great, great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no more place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now the devil that deceived them, verse 10, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet have been already for a thousand years and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So there's two resurrections. There's a resurrection right at the time when the Antichrist is destroyed and cast into the lake of fire. 
that's those that are totally pure in their relationship with God and love, on which the second death has no power, and which have been martyred because they refused to receive the mark of the beast, probably includes all those that refused throughout history to compromise their relationship with God for the systems of this world. And they rise from the dead at that time. They rule with Christ a thousand years. And then at the end of the thousand years, these multitudes come against them, destroyed by fire. There's the great white throne judgment. And then we have in Revelations 21 and 22, the description of the new heaven and the new earth, where there's a city that's one, approximately 1,500 kilometers high, square that comes down upon the new earth which has no more sea that divides representing unity and so we have in the last two chapters a beautiful detailed description of the new heaven and the new earth and this is a broad overview of the book of revelation that i have shared with you and i pray that god will use this to make you aware that the book of Revelations is very relevant and very real, and we see it actually unfolding before our eyes right now. For example, what is happening in Greece, that this leader could very well be the Antichrist, or he could be just an archetype of one that could come out of a place like Jordan, which more, is more even accurate as far as a geographical location, according to what's described in Daniel. However, thank you for listening to this message, and I pray that God will use it to impact your life for eternity.